It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no sheets. The land of fucking with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an interesting interval of intellect (laughs) in an unintelligent world. That's what I say. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800, just about there, by the way, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Well, aren't you a busy beaver? I am, indeed. The busiest. Who are you? I'm Amy Alton. (laughs) I'm also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to find a silver lining in all those scary, scary storm clouds on the horizon. We had some of those last night. Remember yeah. The, oh, yeah. the lightning and the yep. thunder? Big electrical storm. Yeah. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. With a kitten that's all cattywampus? <laughs> I'll bet. Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available, please. Ah, but in a time of active shooters and terrorist attacks, you'd better have some medical knowledge under your belt if you expect to handle the emergencies you might face in times of trouble. But never fear, we're here and not just for the beer. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, do you have some nuggets of... Do you have some nuggets of knowledge in your noggin... That you want us to know. Yes, I bet they do. (laughs) Of course you do. So out with it. We learn as much from you as you do from us. So get in touch. It's easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us anytime by email at dr, that's doctor, but it's spelled dr, bones, podcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. 
Uh, we also have a personal page, which you can like so you can see everything. And that's Joe Alton, MD. Hello. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget, <clears throat> excuse me, don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And our video cast on the first and third month. First Wednesday. and third, on the first and third Wednesdays uh -huh. of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that is on AroundTheCabin.com. Folks, that's a live show. You can interact with us. If you join the chat room, guess what? You might win prizes. Oh, yeah. We give out random prizes at the end of every show, so you might consider that first and third Wednesday of each month, AroundTheCabin.com. And we answer questions, and I'm usually in the chat room and talking to people while Dr. Bones is yakking on the video. And does silly, <laughs> silly demonstrations sometimes. Plus, we have a new show, American Survival Radio. It's our newest association with Genesis Communications Network. And we talk about news and some politics. Um, not a lot, but some. And we try to stay a little neutral if possible. It's kind of hard sometimes, though. <laughs> no, that That's very true. That is on Genesis Communications, GCNlive.com. Don't forget that we have a lot of networks that replay our survival medicine podcast. That's this podcast you're listening to right now, not only on our own channel, but also on great networks like the Prepper Broadcasting Network, USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Survival Central, Shake and Wake <laughs> Radio, and many others and we have other stuff but we're going to talk about some actual news okay first all right before What's we happening? talk about other stuff there's because, always so much news because we just have a lot that we wow do i'll tell you now you know two major earthquakes have hit southern japan hundreds of aftershocks hundreds of aftershocks and perhaps more on the way troops have been called in to dig out almost 100 people they think are buried in rubble after a magnitude 6.2 quake devastated the area, killing nine people, injuring at least 1,000. But then a second, more powerful 7.0 earthquake hit, killing up to 30 people, adding hundreds to the oh, list of injured, toppling large buildings and causing a massive landslide just over a day later. Mm -hmm. 20,000 military personnel, as well as thousands of police and firefighters, are deploying to assist in the relief efforts. At the same time, Japanese media reported that Mount Aso, ASO, the largest active volcano in the country and in the area of the quakes, is erupting. So we got a volcanic eruption. Oh, we no. have earthquakes. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I think they, there was a tsunami, not very big, but a tsunami. No damage reported from the volcanic event, however. Jeez. The powerful earthquake on Saturday set off a huge landslide that swept away homes and cut off a highway in one part of southern Japan. Unlike the earlier earthquake, which affected mostly old houses, larger buildings were damaged. I guess they were weakened by the first quake, then damaged by the second. Mm -hmm. Some of them actually toppled. Uh, we all know that Japan is part of the Ring of Fire, and that's a number of countries that border the Pacific Ocean, including the United States that have significant earthquake activity. In 2011, we reported pretty extensively on the Fukushima earthquake and tidal wave. That killed 20,000 people and caused <clears throat> nuclear meltdowns that rendered nearby areas pretty much uninhabitable. Now, although you get warnings for hurricanes, tornadoes, and even floods, you don't get much warning of an impending earthquake. So how can you protect yourself 
and your loved ones if you're near the epicenter of one of these events. Planning ahead is going to give you the best chance of keeping your family intact, even if everything else is falling apart from the actual earthquake. Now, you got to make sure that each member of your family knows what to do, no matter where they are when an earthquake occurs. It's important to realize that unless an earthquake occurs in the dead of night, it's unlikely you're all going to be together. So make sure that you have a plan of action to meet up. Now, always have some supplies in the house, of course. Here I am talking to you guys about having supplies know, right? in the house, right? <coughs> I think that they're pretty good about that. <laughs> That's right. A good earthquake kit should include, of course, food, water, count on a gallon per person minimum per day, heat source to cook with, perhaps a way to sterilize water. Good idea, right? Bleach, iodine, filters, uh, even sunlight can help. Medical supplies, that's our thing, right? So make sure you have a medical supplies in your kit and make sure that you have a first aid book. May I suggest mm-hmm. the Survival Medicine Handbook? Yes, I I was going to say, what book do you suggest, <laughs> sir? I suggest that one. Fire <laughs> extinguishers, flashlights, portable radio, maybe a hand-cranked one, extra batteries, blankets, clothes, shoes, money. Think about when the power is down, you need to have money, cash money, because... Moolah. Purchasing power is down, too. You might not be able to use your cards, so there you go. You might want to have a wrench or other equipment that will help you turn off gas or water if necessary if some of these pipes Great idea. That's right. Seriously. Besides an earthquake kit for your home, you might consider at least a get-home bag for your car. Some energy bars, fluids, a pair of sturdy walking shoes would be useful in case the roads are damaged. Uh, Be acquainted with your home's gas, electric, and water main shutoffs. That's very important. Make sure the family members have an idea how to turn it off if they're old enough. And especially teach them how to recognize an electrical short or or a gas leak. It's important to know, of course, where the nearest medical facility is. But be sure that you've taken a Red Cross first responder course. You might have to move quickly. And EMTs are going to have their hands full with emergencies. Earthquake victims are going to be trauma victims, and so you need to know how to deal with orthopedic injuries, bleeding, things like that. You know that we've been talking a lot about bleeding since Amy came out with her bleeding control kit for terror events and active shooter events. Her bleeding control kit will work just fine also for this type of situation Absolutely. as well. Any kind of disaster, natural disaster that can cause traumatic injuries and bleeding. One thing I think that people don't do, and they really should, is to ask their school system about what the plan of action is if an earthquake occurs. I mean, if you're in an area where there could be an earthquake, be smart, for goodness sake, and go ahead and ask what they're going to do with the kids, because the truth of the matter is they're just as likely to be at class while you're at work than both of you being at home watching TV together. Right. Now, when the big one hits, you're going to have very little warning, so you got to think about what you're going to do fast to minimize damage and injuries. And so let's do a little planning. Look around your house for fixtures like chandeliers, bookcases that might not be stable enough to withstand an earthquake, like things that fall from the ceiling or fall over, big bookcases, for example. They, those could cause injuries. Make sure the heavy items are on the bottom <coughs> shelves of these bookshelves so that they're pretty weighted solidly and won't fall over. Flat screen TVs, especially big ones, are going to easily topple if they're not anchored, so make sure you secure them. Secure pesticides, other flammable items in closed containers. It's probably not a great idea to hang a big heavy mirror Mm -hmm. over the headboard of your bed. 
if you live in an earthquake area. Absolutely. Just an opinion. So I think that that is a good thing to do. Now, when the tremors start, if you're indoors, drop, get under a table, desk, or something else. Hold on. So that's drop, cover, hold on. Instead of stop, drop, and roll for fires, okay, drop, cover, and hold. So that's the deal. So if you don't have anything to get under, huddle against the inside corner of a room, cover your head with your hands, steer clear of windows, shelves, kitchen areas. These places are going to be bouncing around and windows breaking and things falling off your shelves, things like that. When the building's shaking, don't try to run out. You could easily fall downstairs or get hit by falling debris. Avoid elevators for sure in office buildings. Don't be surprised if the electricity goes out. It probably will. And you also might activate the sprinkler systems if you have one in your house and fire alarms, of course. You're going to hear them all over the neighborhood. You probably heard that standing in a doorway is safest because of the sturdiness of the frame. But it turns out, you know what? In modern homes, many doorways aren't any more solid than any other part of the house. So that is not necessarily considered to be true for all houses. Once the initial tremors are over, get outside. And once you're there, stay as far away from power lines, chimneys, anything else going to fall over on top of you. That is really important. How about if you're in the car when the earthquake hits? Get out of traffic as quickly as possible. Other people that are out on the street are going to be less level-headed than you, and you're going to crash. They're going to crash right into you. Don't stop under bridges, trees, overpasses, power lines, light posts, things like that. And don't leave your vehicle once the tremors start. Okay, if the tremors are active, probably should stay in your vehicle. After it's over, you have to worry about gas leaks. Make sure you don't use camp stoves, lighters, even matches in the house or near the house until you know that things are clear and that there is not a major gas leak. Even one match could ignite a spark that could lead to an explosion. If you've turned the gas off, you might consider letting the utility company turn it on instead of yourself, but that's up to you. Don't count on telephone service after natural disasters. Remember the telephone companies have about the number of lines that's necessary for a 20% of total call volume uh, at any one time. And of course, of course, all lines are going to be occupied during this type of event. So you probably should try to connect with each other by text. Everybody's texting and indeed it does seem to last longer in a uh, disaster situation than voice calling. What happens if the absolute worst happens? Let's say you find yourself trapped under debris. There are 100 people trapped under debris right now in Japan, in southern Japan. Now, in this circumstance, you're going to be inhaling a great deal of dust, so you want to try to cover your face if you can move your arms with an article of clothing or anything else that can serve as a barrier. Don't light matches, as we just mentioned. Gas leaks can cause an explosion. Use anything you can to tap on something solid to make sure that people know that you're there. You got to make noise. If you live in an earthquake zone, it's a wise move to attach a whistle to your keychain. That is actually wouldn't be a, a bad idea. <clears throat> Not at all. Right. And, and these are probably better options than watching. It's going to exhaust you pretty quickly if you're just screaming all the time. After an earthquake or any natural disaster, let's face it, if you're prepared, you're going to end up miles ahead of everybody else in terms of keeping your family healthy and out of harm's way. So put a plan together, get supplies. You, I'm sure most of the people listening here uh, to this show will have supplies, so that's important. But get a plan together. Find out the school's plan, get your supplies stored up, 
And if you do, an earthquake will be just a bump on the road and not the end of the road. A little bit of a bump. That's right. For you and your family. A heck of a bump. That was funny, a bump. <laughs> More like a bump and a shake and a bump. <laughs> Another bump. And a shimmy and a shake. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hey, Zika virus, why is the CDC saying that it is becoming scarier than we first saw it? Well, Zika virus, native to Africa originally, has crossed the Atlantic and is predicted by the World Health Organization to infect 4 million people in the Western Hemisphere in the next year. It's been linked more every day, by the way. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, more evidence came out that it's linked to a number of birth deformities, including close to 5,000 cases of microcephaly. That's a condition where a smaller than normal head circumference in newborns corresponds with a smaller brain and leads to long-term disabilities. That's all happening in Brazil right now, but cases of Zika are occurring all over the southern part of the hemisphere. Researchers also have linked Zika to stillbirths, miscarriages, eye problems, other complications with problems not only in the first trimester, but throughout pregnancy. As I was an obstetrician in the early part of my career, this really speaks to me. I know what kind of heartbreak these kinds of issues can give. It's also related to Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a neurological condition where a person's immune system attacks its own nerve cells and now even other neurological issues resembling multiple sclerosis have been identified. Now, Brazilian researchers reported last week that Zika preferentially targets developing brain cells. They use stem cells to study embryonic brain development in a lab dish. They reported in the journal Science that viral samples taken from a Brazilian patient destroyed growing nerve cells in just a few days. They suspect that's happening in the womb in these Brazilian women. Now, Zika was first identified in monkeys living in the Zika forest in Uganda in 1947. It spread slowly at first and seemed to be pretty harmless, causing hardly any symptoms at all in a lot of people. Matter of fact, no symptoms at all and 80% effective. But it picked up speed in 2007 when it started spreading to Asia and, and the South Pacific. It showed up in Brazil around the time of the World Cup in 2014, and because hardly anyone in the Americas had immunity to Zika, it has spread explosively since then, and it has earned the title of pandemic, a worldwide epidemic. Transmitted by the Aedes species of mosquitoes, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently related its concern for the U.S. as warmer weather arrives this spring and summer. And, of course, what happens with that? the mosquito population explodes. There was a recent survey that found the Aedes mosquito, originally from Egypt, in 30 U.S. states. That's up from 12 in past studies. Aedes, by the way, is the Greek word for unpleasant. No kidding. Now, sure enough, the more researchers learn about the Zika virus, the scarier it appears to federal health officials. They're urging more money for mosquito control and development of vaccines and treatments. 672 cases of Zika virus have been identified in the U.S. and Puerto Rico, about half in Puerto Rico, all of which are tied to persons who have traveled to or who have had sexual relations with someone who traveled to the epidemic zone in Latin America. With the 2016 Summer Olympics taking place in Brazil, the country with the most cases, the CDC expects a lot of U.S. tourists will return with the virus. 
They predict clusters of locally transmitted cases, especially in warm weather states like Texas and Florida, but they've stopped short of suggesting that it will become a full-blown epidemic here. In Puerto Rico, however, the CDC believes that hundreds of thousands of people might indeed become infected. Now, due to its novelty, there's just no proven treatment for Zika virus, and the first vaccines aren't going to be even tested until at least September. Well, guess what? No help there. This is past the time when the Aedes mosquito is going to be most active in the United States. So it's up to you guys out there to watch out for it. The NIH suggests for people with an active infection, get bed rest, take fluids, use acetaminophen to treat the symptoms. The symptoms, by the way, will resemble the flu a little bit with the addition of rashes, some joint pain, and maybe pink eye. Conjunctivitis is what they call pink eye in medical speak, and that occurs with Zika virus as well. Now, aspirin, ibuprofen, they're a little bit discouraged as treatment. Zika virus can mimic a related virus called dengue fever, which can cause abnormal bleeding, which, as you know, ibuprofen and aspirin don't help. Indeed, Zika virus is related not just to dengue fever, but it's related also to yellow fever, and it's related to West Nile virus as well. Now, the best way to prevent infection is to eliminate areas of standing water that could serve as nurseries for a mosquito larvae. Citizens are recommended to use mosquito repellents like DEET, picaridin, IR-335, and lemon eucalyptus oil, a natural substance. How about that? Which is EPA-approved. Whenever you are outdoors, travel to the epidemic zone is a no-no. It should be avoided, especially for pregnant women, and maybe their significant others should consider it as well. Any significant other returning to the U.S. who has a pregnant partner should avoid sex altogether or at least use condoms. Zika is the first virus to have generated a travel warning by the U.S., specifically for those people that are expecting. Cases of Zika and travelers have been identified all over the world, China, Russia, Poland, all over the place from people that have traveled to those areas. And luckily, some of those areas don't have Aedes mosquitoes there naturally. We do, however, and in a field trial, genetically engineered male mosquitoes are going to be released into a test community near Key West, Florida this year. These mosquitoes, known as OX513A, a product of Oxitec, a British company, have a gene that prevents their offspring from developing into adults. They'll compete with normal males for mating privileges. It's thought that they will significantly decrease the mosquito population in at-risk areas. Of course, local citizens aren't too happy with the idea, as you can imagine, and legal action might just block the experiment. President Obama had sought about $1.9 billion in emergency funds to help fight the Zika epidemic internationally and to prepare in case the virus spreads here. But the request has been stalled in the Congress. Last week, therefore, the administration said that it would use $589 million in funds left over from the Ebola outbreak for some of that work. Luckily for the administration, and maybe for us, that Ebola pooped out when it did, it's another example of executive action bypassing Congress. I don't agree with that normally, but I might just agree with this one. So consider long pants, long sleeves if the mosquitoes are thick in your neighborhood this summer. Use your mosquito repellents, reapply them often, especially if you're pregnant or planning to be. And think about how important it really is to see personally who wins the pole vault at the Brazilian Summer Olympics. I want to make an announcement for the very first time. We're making a big announcement about our new book, 
the Zika virus handbook, a doctor tells you all you need to know about the pandemic. It's going to be out in the next few days on Amazon. We're excited about bringing this information to our readers, to the general public. We think that it's important stuff, that it's something that could possibly affect the U.S. in warmer weather. As a matter of fact, the CDC says it will affect the U.S. in warmer weather. And so this is something that I think is a useful guide, concise guide for this particular disease. The Zika virus is going to be just a topic of discussion all summer, and you're going to want to know what you can do if there are some locally transmitted cases in your area. Now, we're going to talk about Zika's origins in Africa, its travels to Asia, the Polynesian Islands, how it spreads from person to person, which it doesn't. It spreads from mosquito to person, Aha! except for sexual transmission, and we're learning a lot more about the virus as days go by. So, we need to know about the virus, and we need to know about the nasty little bug that's transmitting the disease, the Aedes mosquito. We'll talk about the medical issues in the book that more and more prove that Zika virus is linked to especially birth abnormalities, nerve conditions that can affect adults and cause paralysis and other problems. You'll learn how to identify an active case, how to differentiate it from its relatives like yellow fever, dengue fever, West Nile virus, and others, and more importantly, how to prevent your property from harboring mosquitoes that will put you and your family at risk. We also talk about pandemics of the past and present in the Zika virus handbook and how to put together an effective epidemic sick room. A lot more. A lot of theories as to why these previously minor illnesses have become a big issue on this side of the pond exist, and we even go through a lot of these, examine them for just how plausible these theories are. A lot of you remember our Ebola survival handbook. This book is a little bit like it, although I was pretty mad about our government's lack of response with Ebola. I'm a little calmer about Zika, and I think that for Zika, we need a calm, no-nonsense approach for dealing with it. I talk about our policy going forward on this epidemic for the country, for the CDC, for the world, really, and I talk about things that make the most sense for pregnant women, really just about anyone in terms of staying safe and healthy. I hope you'll check out the Zika virus handbook. We'll be making announcements when it comes out, and I think you'll find it a good, concise read. Hey, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARMP.
And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And speaking of Nurse Amy, Amy has some very strong opinions about a particular topic, and that topic is fluoride. Fluoride in our water, the effects of fluoride that may occur in our population, and what you can do about it. So here's Nurse Amy. Yes, I'm going to talk to you about fluoride in our water. So you're going to talk about how awesome fluoride is for our water supplies and how it makes people so healthy and things like that? (laughs) I think not. And I'm going to alert people who may be unaware of the dangers fluoride water poisoning can cause. And it might be a surprise to you that toxic exposure to fluoride can cause neurotoxicity of the brain, including lowered IQ, autism, passiveness, ADD, hypothyroidism, decreased bone density, including bone fractures, joint pain and bone pain, and arthritis, dermatitis, gastric distress, pulmonary disease, cancer, and yes, even death. Are you scared yet? I know I am, and I have been for a long time. That's why I try to avoid fluoride. So where did this come from? Why do we have fluoride in our water? In the 1920s and 1930s, the explosive growth of phosphate fertilizer and aluminum industries created a rise in the toxic byproducts of both. The EPA, or the Environmental Protection Protection Agency, demanded companies install pollution control devices to trap these byproducts, which included fluoride as a major component. The first marketing strategy for getting rid of this fluoride was to sell it as a rat poison and an insecticide. The next brilliant idea was to dump the excess toxic waste into the public's drinking water. The solution for pollution is dilution. Fantastic. Let's just give it to the unsuspecting public and tell them it's great. I won't get into all the people who work together to con the American people. However, I do want you to know about one person, Dr. Gerald Cox. Dr. Cox was neither a physician nor a dentist. He worked at the Mellon Institute owned by Alcoa, the aluminum company of America, the creators of the toxic byproduct fluoride. The Mellon Institute did research on asbestos, and guess what? They proved that was safe also. And now they claimed fluoride was great for your teeth. Pressured by extensive lobbying, the U.S. Public Health Service embraced using fluoride as a water additive for our own good, naturally. Not to mention the fact that it will allow them to get rid of those leftover toxins and dispose of them safely in our water supply. A clever marketing strategy was begun to exalt the amazing benefits of fluoride to prevent cavities. And those that opposed it were, and still are today, vilified. And let's not forget Monsanto paid for the research in 1957, performed by a researcher, to help protect Monsanto from lawsuits relating to fluoride toxicity. Them again, Monsanto, when will it end? There has never been one good sound study to prove internal dosing of fluoride helps our teeth. In fact, fluoride is a topical medicine used to help treat tooth decay. Read your toothpaste label and you will find a poison warning. The toothpaste fluoride isn't exactly the same fluoride poured into our water systems, thank goodness. The fluoride in your water 
is the stuff captured at the top of those monster-like smokestacks pouring out clouds of toxic gases. How appetizing is that? It is never purified, but simply put into trucks and hauled off to the water districts. Oh, and by the way, the federal government subsidizes the use of fluoride by the water districts, sometimes to the tune of $100,000. Isn't that special? It's very important to note that the fluoride in your water is not even pharmaceutical grade. Remember, it's a toxic industrial waste product. You want to know what else is in that fluoride toxic byproduct dumped into our water? Here's just a few. Arsenic, barium, cadmium, copper, lead, phosphorus, silver, chromium, mercury, and uranium-28. When this stuff is in an undiluted state, in other words, before it's poured into your water system, it will corrode glass. Yes, glass. Your skin will absorb it. So every time you take a shower, your exposure increases. It is so dangerous to infants that the American Dental Association has issued a warning that dry formula should not be mixed with fluoridated water. And patients on kidney dialysis must only receive non-fluoridated water. There have been several documented cases of serious injury and death from fluoride toxicity after kidney dialysis from accidental use of fluoridated water. In terms of acute toxicity, which means the dose that can cause immediate toxic consequences, and I quote, fluoride is more toxic than lead, but slightly less toxic than arsenic. These words of Dr. John Yamalianis may come as a shock to you, because if you're like most Americans, you have a positive association with fluoride. Fluoride has long been used as a pesticide to kill pests like rats and insects, but 66% of America's drinking water is fluoridated. Fluoride is neither safe nor effective. Fluoride is a drug and should only be dispensed by a doctor or nurse practitioner after careful examination of the patient on an individual basis. No other drug is poured into our water system for general consumption. The safe dosage cannot be monitored by your doctor. Some get more, some get less. Did you sign an informed consent to be medicated by your water district? I want to remind you that fluoride is a topical medicine and has no internal or systemic benefits. It's like swallowing suntan lotion or applying a blood pressure medicine to your arm. Most European countries, 98% to be exact, do not allow fluoridation. Studies have shown their children's teeth are just as healthy as the children in the U.S. A lowering of tooth decay rates was found to decrease evenly over the past 50 years in areas both with and without fluoridation methods. Even China does not, China does not allow water fluoridation because it's too toxic and causes damage, according to their studies. Instead, the waste product from their phosphate fertilizer industry is shipped to the United States, where we add it to our water supply. Some studies have shown that fluoride and chloride may contribute to weakening of the skeletal system, high risk of fractures, depression, kidney problems, poor thyroid function, obesity, lack of focus, asthma, respiratory problems, and as I mentioned before, possibly cancer and even death. Fluorosis is a major problem in American children. It's characterized by brown stains, white spots, or even lines, or loose or missing enamel and brittle teeth. 
is caused by fluoride toxicity, not a lack of fluoride. Listen to that. Caused by too much, not enough. So how does this happen? Fluoride is present in our water, both tap and bottled water, food, soups, drinks, pesticides, infant formulas, our toothpaste, medicines we take. It's all over the place. We swallow it. We brush with it. We bathe it. Fluorosis is caused by overexposure of fluoride at an early age. A rate of 32% of American children aged 6 to 19 have dental fluorosis, and there is no cure. There are many signs in recent years that indicate growing skepticism over fluoridation. The New York Times reported in October 2011 that in the previous four years, about 200 jurisdictions across the USA moved to cease water fluoridation. A panel composed of scientists and health professionals in Fairbanks, Alaska, recently recommended ceasing fluoridation of the county water supply after concluding that the addition of fluoride to already natural fluoridated reserves could pose health risks to 700,000 residents. The move to end fluoridation would save the county an estimated $205,000 annually. The city of Portland made headlines in 2013 when it voted down a measure to fluoridate its water supply. The citizens of Portland have rejected introducing the chemical to drinking water on three separate occasions since the 1950s. Portland remains the largest city in the U.S. to shun fluoridation. The movement against fluoridation has gained traction overseas as well. In 2013, Israel's Ministry of Health committed to a countywide phase-out of fluoridation. The decision came after Israel's Supreme Court deemed the existing health regulations requiring fluoridation to be based on science that is outdated and no longer accepted. In other words, they realize it's hooey. All this year, the government of the Australian state of Queensland estimated $14 million in funding for its statewide fluoridation campaign. The decision, which was executed by the Liberal National Party, LNP, government forced the local councils to vote on whether or not to introduce fluoride to their water supplies. Less than two months after the decision came down, several, including the town of Carnes, halted fluoridation. As a result, nearly 200,000 Australians will no longer be exposed to fluoride in their drinking water. They are so lucky. An ever-growing number of institutions and individuals are questioning the wisdom of fluoridation. At the fore of the movement are thousands of scientific authorities and health professionals who are speaking out about the hazards of this damaging additive. As of November 2013, a group of over 4,549 professionals, including 331 dentists and 562 medical doctors, have added their names to a petition aimed at ending fluoridation, started by the Fluoride Action Network. Among the prominent signatories are Nobel laureate Arvid Carlson and William Marcus, Ph.D., who served as the chief toxicologist of the EPA Water Division. That's right, the EPA Water Division. Now, if you're looking to reduce your intake of fluorine and fluoride, one is the element and the other one is the ion, but both are toxic. It may help you to know that everyday products contain them and some steps that you can take to limit your exposure. First of all, these do not remove fluoride. Most water filters do not remove fluoride. Some websites state that they do, but they really don't. Boiling water will concentrate the fluoride rather than reduce it, and freezing water does not affect the concentration of fluoride. 
Some bottled spring water sources contain naturally low levels of fluoride, and you can check with the brand by calling the number on the label. Reverse osmosis deionizers and activated alumina filters remove about 90 to 95% of the fluoride from your drinking water, and it's better than doing nothing. Distilled water will remove most, if not all, of the fluoride and is the safest. And that is what I have been drinking since 1988. There is a water filter that has a special media in it, and it's called a Berkey PF2. And those elements, when added to the black Berkey element filter, can reliably remove fluoride contaminants for up to 1,000 gallons. Now, the part of the filter that is called the black Berkey element can last 3,000 gallons, but you have to change the PF2 every 1,000. So you'll have three of the PF2s for every one black Berkey element. So that's important to know. So what else can you do? Natural toothpaste can be simply baking soda. Dipping your toothbrush into hydrogen peroxide first and then in baking soda will promote cleaner teeth and healthier gums. Both hydrogen peroxide and baking soda should be in your house. Don't drink unfiltered public water. Assume it's fluoridated unless you know otherwise. Most home water filters will not remove fluoride. Don't take fluoride supplements or get fluoride gel treatments at the dental office unless you are a high-risk patient for cavities. Don't take Cipro or other fluoridated pharmaceuticals. Try to limit drinking soda since it's generally made with fluoridated water. Reconstituted fruit juice, beer, and wine also tend to be made with fluoridated water. Read labels on bottled beverages and look for purified water using distillation or at least reverse osmosis. If those processes are not specifically named, assume the water is fluoridated. Read the label on the bottled water. Again, look for a water purified using reverse osmosis or the better one, distillation. Choose organic fruits and vegetables since the U.S. National Organic Program does not permit the use of pesticides that leave high fluoride residues. Expect tinned fish and canned food items to contain fluoride. Avoid or limit your consumption of mechanically deboned chicken in any form, including chicken nuggets, canned chicken, and baby food. Traces of fluoride from bones remain from the deboning process. Fluoride may be used as a preservative in many products. Sometimes you will be able to see this on the product label, so folks read your labels. Avoid black or red rock salt or items containing black or red rock salt. Avoid chewing tobacco. If you have to use a fluoridated toothpaste, only use a pea-sized amount and rinse your mouth vigorously with water, non-fluoridated water, after brushing your teeth. If you need anesthesia, please ask your doctor about options using drugs that do not contain fluorine. Avoid overheating Teflon pans while cooking, as some of the Teflon, a fluorine compound, may be released into the air. Fluoride is not an essential nutrient for the human body. It is a drug to be carefully administered topically to your teeth. It is a poison captured from fertilizer manufacturing plants and sold as a tooth decay prevention at a large profit from toxic waste surplus. Our government subsidizes this and encourages the poisoning of our drinking water. We need to stop this atrocity with action. Call your mayor and complain. Do research and present the facts. It's time to stop poisoning our children and us. 
Fluoride in our water is poison and pollution. Well, it seems that we don't really get as much benefit as I guess we're told that we're getting from <laughs> fluoride, huh? Do you think? <laughs> Let's just throw some rat poison in our water and see what happens. Yucka do. Mm-hmm. Hey, why don't you tell people where we're going to be in the near future? Absolutely. Well, let's see. We've got three weekends in a row. This is 2016, April. At the end of the month, we're going to be in North Carolina. Oh, boy. Near Waynesville. Nice area near the Smokies. Uh-huh. Pretty, pretty. Leaves aren't changing, but it's still beautiful. That's right. It's Well, they're leave, they are changing. They're sort of coming in. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's New right. growth. I guess that's what you could cause, call a change. So we'll be at the Heritage Life Skills Center. Yep. It's their fifth one in a row. And that will be April 29th, 30th, and May 1st. So come out. It's going to be a really, really good place to learn and check out some products and meet a lot of like-minded people. Right. Then we're going to be heading east to the MPS Expo. We're actually going to drive. That's right. So what right. we're going to do is we're going to go stay at our house in Gatlinburg. Yay! Uh, yay. We'll do that for a little while. I'm so excited. Then head to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. We're going to drive all the way there. That's the <laughs> weekend. South Florida. Right, and that's the weekend from? May 7th and May 8th. That's the NPS Expo. For more information, it's NPSExpo.com. Dot com. Absolutely. Then we're going to drive home furiously. Yes. <laughs> and indeed, a couple days we will. Yes, and a couple days after that we're going to get on a plane and fly to good old Dallas, Texas. That's right. Don't for, mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And we're going to be at the Self-Reliance Expo. And that's self let's see. Self-reliance.com. Uh, yes. SRE I'm just trying to Expo. Right. Yes. Yeah, just yes. trying to give people some websites so you can find out more information about the schedule, the times, when we're going to be speaking. And you can sign up for some of our hands-on classes. We're going to have suture classes and things like that. Well, yeah, and I think that's really important for people to learn. And we're not in these areas very often. So if you guys are anywhere near North Carolina, in fact, North Carolina, I'm going to be doing a first-time very special class, and it's on bleeding control. And that one will be held at the Heritage Life Skills in North Carolina. Very cool. Yeah. I'm very excited. Everybody's going to get to use tourniquets, learn how to use them, two or three different kinds. They're going to learn how to do direct pressure. They're going to learn how to put on an Israeli bandage. So all these things that you guys might have at home and you're afraid to open them up because you don't want to mess them up, this is the class for you. Limited seating, and I will be teaching that on May 1st on Sunday, and you're going to do the suture class on Saturday That's at the right. Heritage Life Skills. Should be a lot of fun. Make sure you come by and see us if you are in western North Carolina, Waynesville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. You're going to talk a little bit about a very unusual plant that you have in our garden. <laughs> well, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to try to get through this. So what we're going to talk about today is called Miracle Fruit. Miracle fruit is a type of fruit native to West Africa, although it does grow great in Florida. Eating miracle fruit is known to alter the flavors of certain foods. For example, chewing the berries before eating lemon, yes, lemon, can cause the lemon to taste sweet. Pretty much cause anything to taste sweet rather than sour. It's really interesting. Now, how does it work? 
Research suggests that Miracle Fruit's flavor-modifying effect is due to something called miraculin, a protein found in the berry. Miraculin appears to alter the shape of proteins on the tongue responsible for sensing sweet flavors. As a result, these proteins, known as sweet receptors, respond to acidic or bitter foods in a way that creates a sensation of sweetness. Although miracle fruit is often used to experiment with flavor changes, there's also widespread interest in the berry's potential health benefits. For instance, some doctors are exploring miracle fruit's ability to increase appetite in certain populations of patients, especially those undergoing chemotherapy. Widely available in tablet form, miracle fruit is sometimes touted as a weight loss aid. Few studies have tested miracle fruit's effects on health, and here's some evidence that the berry may offer certain benefits. And we're going to look at some of these findings from the available research out there. One, diabetes. Preliminary research suggests that miracle fruit might be beneficial in the treatment of diabetes. In a study published in Phytotherapy Research in 2006, scientists fed miracle fruit to a group of rats placed on a diet of high fructose, which is a type of sugar known to increase blood sugar levels. Research showed that miracle fruit helped protect against insulin resistance, a health problem closely linked to the development of diabetes. In another study, published in the Clinical Journal of Oncology Nursing in 2012, researchers found that miracle fruit may be of some benefits to patients receiving chemotherapy. The study included eight patients with cancer, all of whom were experiencing chemotherapy-related taste changes, a common side effect of chemotherapy. What happens is the chemotherapy destroys the cells in the tongue, and it results in poor taste, usually poor nutrition, and overall a reduced quality of life. For the study, half of the patients were given a two-week supply of miracle fruit, while the other half were given a two-week supply of a placebo. After two weeks, the treatment and placebo groups were switched. Looking at food diaries and taste change ratings submitted by each patient, the study's authors determined that miracle fruit had a positive effect on taste changes. Let's talk about weight loss. Miracle fruit might benefit some people who are trying to reduce their caloric intake. According to a small study published in the journal Appetite in 2011, in an experiment involving 13 people, researchers gave each participant a lemon juice-based popsicle that was either low in sugar or sweetened with sucrose, also known as table sugar. Some of the study members were also given miracle fruit prior to eating their popsicles. All popsicles were consumed after the subject had eaten a standard breakfast and lunch. Analyzing the participants' food intake for the remainder of the day, the researchers found that the study members given both miracle fruit and the low-sugar popsicle consumed fewer calories. Yay! Compared to those who ate either the sucrose-sweetened popsicle or the low-sugar popsicle without miracle fruit. Given this finding, the study's authors concluded that miracle fruit can enhance the sweetness of low-sugar desserts while limiting calorie intake. Perfect for weight loss. Although miracle fruit is generally considered safe when consumed occasionally with food, the safety of long-term use of miracle fruit supplements is unknown. It's important to keep in mind that supplements haven't been tested for safety and dietary supplements, and both are largely unregulated. In some cases, the product may deliver doses that differ from the specified amount for each herb. In other cases, the product might be contaminated with other substances such as metals. 
Also, the safety of supplements in pregnant women, nursing mothers, children, and those with other medical conditions who are taking medications has not been established. Miracle fruit berries and seeds are widely available for purchase online. In addition, some nurseries sell miracle fruit seeds. You can also purchase miracle fruit tablets in many natural food stores or stores specializing in dietary supplements. Due to the limited research, it's too soon to recommend miracle fruit as a treatment for any condition. It's also important to note that miracle fruit in the treatment of a chronic condition such as diabetes and avoiding standard medical care may be harmful to your health. If you're considering using it for any health purpose, make sure to consult your physician first. Here's some tips on growing your plant. It's a small evergreen plant and it's considered a shrub and grows really, really slowly. They can grow to a height of four to six feet in a container and between 10 and 15 feet in its natural habitat. A seven-year-old plant might only be four to five feet tall. Your plant will prefer growing at 75 to 85 degrees. They'll be okay at temperatures above 45 degrees, but they'll suffer greatly and die if it's in the low 30s. Cool weather below 75, be sure to ease up on watering. Cool weather and wet soil could cause problems and may kill your plant. Be sure to plant them in rich, well-drained soils with lots of peat moss or coconut core and provide micronutrients on a regular basis. The fruit is a bright scarlet color with one-inch football-shaped fruits. The fruit has very little flavor, but it's slightly sweet and pleasant, and the large seed has little pulp. The plant starts fruiting when it's about 16-inch tall and produces fruit practically year-round. So lots of luck with your miracle fruit tree. This is Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy with the Survival Medicine Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net here. And I'm nurse practitioner Amy Alton. And we're here to get you medically prepared. A lot can happen in the uncertain future, natural disasters, epidemics, terror events, but we're here with medical kits and supplies that will help make you a medical asset in times of trouble. From first aid kits for the trail to complete family medical survival kits, we've got an entire line to help you deal with injuries and illnesses in any scenario. Compare our kits to others and you'll agree that only our kits are assembled to work best when help is not on the way. So get a quality kit from a doctor and nurse practitioner and not some mass-produced knockoff. Often imitated, never equaled. That's store.doomandbloom.net, store.doomandbloom.net. And hey, get the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, the Survival Medicine Handbook, 3rd Edition. Find it and the all-you-need-to-know Zika Virus Handbook on Amazon.com.